Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. You know, there really is just something about being, you know, I, I've, I've had times and you've had times, no doubt, alone with God, um, where you just, you know, you sense his presence and you know he's ministering to your heart. But there's there's something about just being with his people. There's something about being in a church setting, just worshiping the Lord and giving him glory. You know, it's it's kind of a, sometimes it's hard to maybe quantify, but you know God is doing things in your heart. You know, one of the ways I know is just because my desire to be there. You know, I've been I've been at places where, you know, you sit through the whole church service and the band and the choir and the preaching and it didn't get really good till the very end. You know what I mean? You ever been in one of those church services? And then the end when they're just kind of ministering at the altar or whatever, just the just the spirit of God in, in the place manifested among his people. You just didn't want to leave, you know, and, and you just sit there. And I've been there till the very end, till the band played every song they knew three times and you just sit there. I, I remember one time I was actually in the band at this time. Let me get a little closer to you guys. I feel so far away. I remember one time I was actually in the band. We literally played everything we knew three, four times. We get done and our worship leader stopped and everybody was still sitting there. Nobody moved. He was just like, well, we're done. But but we were just sitting in the presence of God and it was good. It was good. You know, God can do more in just a moment than we can do with hours and hours of struggling and trying to make things happen on our own. Amen. So um, last week I started talking to you. We've, I've been in the book of Galatians for um, every other week, it seems, for, for a month or so. Uh, last week I talked to you about the reality of Jesus Christ in you. Um, just enjoyed that one. We were basing it off of uh, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Say that with me. Christ who lives in me. You did all right. You did all right. I'm going to give you a second chance. Ready? One, two, three. I'm a kid's church now, right? One, two, three. Christ who lives in me. This is important. We've got to come to the realization that Jesus Christ lives in me. I mean, I won't do much for the kingdom of God until I can do it out of the strength that he provides and the reality and the realization that Jesus Christ wants to inhabit me, live inside of me. Amen. It says, in the life that I now live in the flesh, this is important, this is what I want to talk about today, the life that I live in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Last week I said that Jesus wants to inhabit us completely, spirit and soul and body, right? You know, we're made up of more than just a body, right? How How is it that, you know, the rich man and Lazarus, you know, uh, died? But when their bodies were buried in ground, Jesus is telling stories about how they, you know, could see they were in the in the in the earth somewhere and and they could identify and recognize each other and have conversations. Right. How is it that that happens? Because when I lay this tent down, the real me, the part that inhabits this tent goes to be with the Lord. Amen. So uh, you are a spirit and you have a soul, you have a mind, but you live and you you inhabit a body. If you don't have a body, you don't get to stay here. Right? Right? Pretty basic stuff, right? But Jesus, you know, in your spirit is what makes you born again. He comes in. He's in you. He indwells you. He comes into your spirit. You say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I make you Lord. He does that miracle in you. It's called the new birth. It's called, you know, the new creation. It's called being born again. But he moves into your spirit. And so 
Jesus in your spirit makes you a new new creation, born again. But it also tells us in the scriptures to be transformed by renewing our minds, right? Well, a transformed mind is a mind that is yielded to God so that God can flow and work through your mind, your thoughts, your your soul, your even your emotions. God wants to inhabit your soul. Okay. And then, you know, the, your body, what about your body in the book of Acts? When uh, the Holy Spirit fell, uh, Peter stood up and quoted from the prophet Joel. And he said that the Lord said he was going to do this. He was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all flesh. So Jesus wants to inhabit your flesh the same way he inhabits your spirit. Amen. I mean, Jesus was born of the spirit, yet the Holy Spirit Descended on him in bodily form, right? So Jesus wants to inhabit a spirit, soul, and body. And I want to look with you today about, I want to talk to you today about um, me being in Christ, okay? We talked last week about Christ being me. I want to talk about me being in Christ. But as just to set this up, look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Now, I'm going to preach out of Galatians, but I'm going to jump all over, Okay. It says, uh, for in him, we're talking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's an interesting thought there, isn't it? What's it saying there? It's saying that Jesus was so full of God. Wait a minute, that sounds weird because Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God, God in the flesh. But what, what's, it, what's it really saying? It's saying all that God is, is in Jesus. All that God is. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in his body. And so the key here is body, all right? The fullness of God. The the, the idea that the fullness of God can actually dwell in a human body is just a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? It's amazing to think about that. I mean, it's easy to imagine God out there somewhere, all-powerful being somewhere out there floating around bodiless spirit existence, right? But here Jesus localized he localized and, and housed in a body the fullness of God. Listen to a couple of the other translations. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. The entire fullness of God's nature. The Good News Translation says, for the full content, the full content of the divine nature lives in Christ, in his humanity. The Living Bible says, for in Christ, there is all of God in a human body. Right there. That's maybe the best one. All of God in a human body. It's an amazing thought. And when, when, you, when you see this, you can't help but think about the original creation of man, right? Adam and Eve, you know, were created in the image of God, right? They were created in the image and likeness of God. I talk about it all the time. Let's look at the verse from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and the earth and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Basically, he said, I'm making man and woman in my image and in my likeness, and they're going to rule everything I've created. They're going to govern everything I've created. So the image of God has something to do with governing the earth, doesn't it? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so, you know, there are different ideas about what it means to be made in the image of God, you know, but they all recognize the fact that there is something 
to some degree inside of humans, inside of people that is exactly like God. That represents God, that, that is people being like God himself. Of course, when Adam sinned, then, you know, that image became distorted, right? It became broken, it became twisted. It could no longer accurately represent that. Now, I mean, people are trying to rule and dominate one another by what uh, Jesus said. I'm going to get off my notes already, but that's okay. But you remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples and he says, the, the rulers of this world try to lord it over one another. And they try to subdue one another and put them down. But it's not going to be like that among you. Why? Because I'm restoring the image of God. You're going to rule, but you're going to rule by service. You're going to rule by love. You're going to have real authority over my creation, but it's going to come through me. And this is what I'm doing. I'm serving. I'm loving. It's the image of God restored. The governorship, the way that God wants to govern. I mean, he, he's going to come. Don't, don't think I'm going to. He's not going to be soft on sin at that point when he comes down and sets his foot down. But right now, what's he doing? He's given his life. He's laid down his life. He served. And that's what he's calling us to do. And in doing that, we reflect his image to the world. But the reason, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that God uh, can live in a human body at all is because people, you and me, we're made in his image and in his likeness. That's why it's like it was marked out for him from the very beginning that he's going to come as a human because humans are made like God. Humans can, God can inhabit a human. And so he came to restore that image of God in you and me, in his church. The New Testament for everyone reads that verse. It says it like this. Uh, in him, you see, all the measure of divinity has taken up bodily residence. Taken up bodily residence. And it's a natural thing for God to be able to do. So if you look then at uh, uh, verse 10, this one, this is where you, well, go back to verse nine. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, this blows your mind. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled in him. And then look at the you who is the head of all rule and authority. Why would that be there? Because being made in the image of God has something to do with that rule and authority. Amen. That's what Adam had, rule and authority to govern. And here Jesus Christ comes to restore the image of God. And he is the head of all rule and authority. But you have been filled in him. This is what I want to talk about today, being in Christ, being in Christ. The Worldwide English Translation says it like this. Christ, it's not in the screen, so don't worry about it. But verse nine says, Christ has everything that God has. Christ has everything God has. And you too have everything when you are in him. I like that. You have everything when you are in him. So I want to talk to you today for a few minutes about being in Christ. Um, in Christ, it's a statement that reflects our relationship with God, right? We know where we are at, in where our position is in relationship to God. How many of you know it's kind of good to know where you're at positionally when you're navigating, you know? I don't know what it's like now, but when I was learning how to fly an airplane, we had little red flags on the map when we were flying into a large airport. And when we were, we could use those little flags as a checkpoint, um, to tell the air traffic controller where we were at. It's good to know where you're at, right? And so knowing where we're at in relationship to Christ, are you in Christ? Not everybody is in Christ. It would be presumptuous to say everybody is in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, you're going to love this. <laughs> you're going to love this. If you're not, you might want to you might want to consider coming into Christ. It's not a difficult thing to do. We'll talk about that as well. Um 
In Christ is a statement that reflects our relationship. It's in Christ is how heaven sees you. That's really good news, right? How many of you know, we've been told when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, right? That's a comforting thought, isn't it? It's a true thought because on my own, I can't stand before God. But when I'm in Christ, he sees Jesus Christ, right? But do you know what else? As far as being a person who has the authority to govern on this earth, I want to just tell you too, when you come up against the devil, that's what he sees is Jesus. If you're in Christ and you run up against that problem, against that mountain, against that demon, that thing, when it sees you, it sees Jesus. Think about that. That's why when Joseph stands here and he prays in the authority of Jesus Christ and speaks over Brook and we come against that mountain, as far as that mountain's concerned, the word Jesus spoke to it today. And it's got to obey, amen? Right. We've, got to, we've got to come to that conclusion in our heart that when I speak, when I live in Christ, when I am in Christ and I speak, it's like Jesus speaking. And Jesus said as much. He said amazing things. Whatever you ask for in prayer, you abide in me, my words abide in you. Whatever you ask, that's that's a big open, that's like a blank check. And somehow he trusts his spirit in you and me that we're not going to do the wrong thing. He's got more faith in us than we do. I'm just telling you, he really does. He's a faith God because he's got faith in you and me. He's got faith in the ability of his spirit to go into you and into my heart and change our nature so that we ask for the right things when we're in Christ and we're led by the Spirit. But it's about being in Christ, amen? So in Christ, this is also called the doctrine of identification with Christ. Identification is just a Bible theological term that means that when Jesus, when God looks at what Jesus did, he sees that I did it with him. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, right? Has anybody been on a cross? No, Jesus was the one who hung on the cross. But when God looks at me, he sees me as having been crucified with Jesus and raised together with him. It's a doctrine of identification. It's powerful just to sit and meditate, read the scriptures and realize not who you think you are, not how you feel like you are, not even how your friends and family might think you are, but how God thinks you are. This is how God sees you. This gives you a lot of boldness when you're standing up facing that, you know, thing, your situation you're praying against, that problem, that sickness, that, 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 that need you have. You stand there, not in your name, not on your works, but in him. And heaven is so willing to back you because this is all God's idea. This is what he says, in Christ, in Christ. You know, we've been told to put on the full armor of God, the full armor of God, salvation, righteousness, truth, the readiness, you know, that comes from the gospel, shield of faith, or faithfulness, sword of the spirit, the full armor of God. But how would you do that? I mean, do you remember when King Saul tried to give David his armor? Do you remember that story in the Bible? Look at that first Samuel chapter 17. It says that Saul, David somehow convinces Saul that he can handle the giant. So Saul's like, well, okay, I'm going to send you out there to beat that giant, but I'm going to put you in my armor. That must have been real convenient for Saul, too, because, you know, maybe Saul should have been the one out there going after the giant first. But he says, I want to, you, you want to go? Okay, here, let's dress you up like me. So when they see you across the way, they'll think I'm going. <laughs> but he says, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off. David couldn't use Saul's armor. I mean, Saul's armor was probably the best armor there was in town, right? 
Saul was a warrior himself, but David putting his armor on, he's like, it, it didn't fit right. I didn't prove it. I didn't try it. I don't know what it can do. Yet here we are, and God says, put on the full armor of God. How can you and me, how can we wear the armor of God? And it fits. I mean, think about that. The armor of God fits you. Why? Because before you put on the armor of God, you're invited to put on Christ. You're invited to put on Jesus Christ. For as many of you, Galatians 3.27, were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Okay, that armor will fit Christ every time. <laughs> Just stay in Christ. You have access to him. You have access to his armor. And when the devil sees you walking down the street, he doesn't know whether that's Christ or not. Think about that. He sees you carrying the armor of God, operating in truth, operating in faithfulness, operating in righteousness, uh, speaking the word of God. He doesn't know whether that's Jesus in there or not, and he shouldn't. And as far as your problem's con concerned, like I said, it's Jesus speaking that, that problem. When you're speaking the word of God and you've got on the armor of God, just let Jesus do it in you, amen? So it's about being in Christ. We have a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there it is again, in Christ, in him, we might be made what? The righteousness of God. There's righteousness being in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is, what's the word right there? In Christ, in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone, the old has passed away, the new has come. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's my access into the family of God, amen? Being in Christ. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one is just full of these. I'm gonna skip down through here. Ephesians chapter one and verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Man, when you are in Christ, you are already blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That means God has already blessed you. He has already said every good thing there is to say about you. When you are in Christ, it's all yours. Isn't that cool? Verse seven, in him, in him, in who? Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. I got one. I got one. <laughs> and we have what? Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Well, there's redemption. Our, where is our redemption and our forgiveness? But in Christ. Amen? It's in Christ. In him. Verse 11. In him. In who? In Christ. You're getting a little better by the time I get to the last verse, which is the next verse. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll be on, on target. I don't know. Anyway, in him we have obtained an inheritance. You have an inheritance in him having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who is predestined? Those who are in Christ, right? You ever got on an airplane that was predestined to go somewhere, right? You don't get on the airplane, you're not going. You get on the airplane, you'll, if, you'll get to your destination. Why? Because, you know, when we went to India, we got on an airplane and that thing was predestined to go to, where do we land? New Delhi. <laughs> it's predestined for New Delhi. We got on the plane and it took us there. You get in Christ, you are predestined. You are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You stay with him, he'll get you there. Amen. Okay, this is your last chance already. Verse 13. In him. In who? Christ. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Christ, come on, thank the Lord, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so these in him, these in Christ references, they're found all throughout the New Testament. But I just want to talk to you today just for a few minutes um, about a very significant illustration of this that you'll find in Galatians chapter 3, okay? If you have a Bible and you would like to open it up, I'm done jumping around. Open up to Galatians chapter 3, and let's look at this together. I need to give you just a little bit of, of a, a little bit of background on it here. So I'm going to start at verse 11, okay? It doesn't take that long to read a chapter in the Bible. Take a minute or two. I'm going to read you a good portion of this scripture today because Honestly, the Bible explains it better than I can explain it. If we just read it and say, okay, believe it, <laughs> there you go. I mean, change your life, right? But uh, it says in Galatians 3, starting at verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified. That means declared right, to be made right. Um, whenever you see in the Bible the word justified, a lot of times it's the same word as uh, being made right, righteous, righteous justification. Some Bibles, just for the sake of, of the literary flow, will use both both words. Some Bibles will be more consistent and always translated as one word, but it's the same Greek word. So it's evident that no one is made right before God or declared right before God by the law. For the righteous, see right there, that righteous shall live by faith. Same word is justified. The righteous shall live by faith. Okay, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So faith and the law, they're, they're not the same thing. Amen. Thank God. Um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, here's this word, look at this phrase. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ Jesus, so here we go again. In Christ Jesus, something happened. And in Christ Jesus, see, what happened was there was this guy named Abraham, and God said, hey, why don't you follow me? I'm going to make a nation from you. Actually, God chose him. He said, the whole, the whole world's just gone crazy. I'm going to choose one man. Through him, I'm going to build a nation, and I'm going to rescue all of the nations through this one man. Okay, that's the, that's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Okay, the Old Testament is tracing the lineage of, of Jesus Christ, the Jewish people. And so he says, um, why don't you follow me? I've got blessings for you. And here it says in, in verse 14 that the blessing is the promised spirit. Remember that, okay? It's going to be very important. Verse 15 then, uh, he, he goes on. He says, okay, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it's been ratified. This is like a legal document here, isn't it? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. And in some translations, I don't know, uh, they'll say to his seed and seeds. And some will say to his offspring, offsprings. Um, my favorite one is when it says to his descendant. So I may change that word offspring to descendant because it's the only one really in English that makes sense to say descendant as in one, or descendants, right? Because offspring, think about it, seed can be plural, offspring can be plural, but descendant, singular, right? So he's making this promise to Abraham and to his descendant. Now, the apostle 
Paul here is he's building his case on the fact that uh, on on a when I when I was about ten years old, I really hated doing English in school. I liked I liked um, hard sciences. I was like I like math because you know A plus B equals C. It's a hard answer. You know, there's not all this. It's not up for discussion and debate, and there's not other ways to do it. It's like hard science. I like that. And I listened to this preacher then. He said, he said, you don't think language is important? He said, the Apostle Paul based his whole argument on just this word being singular rather than plural. And ever since then, I was like, I love language. I want to understand language. And, and it did. It changed. I, 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 I started really excelling. And by the time I got to college, which was like years later, I was way better in that than in than in the math, but um, it's interesting that uh, he's giving this uh, promise and he's making the case that you know it's not just all of Abraham's descendants we're talking about. We're talking about one specific one who is Christ, right? And then verse seventeen, he says, "This is what I mean: the law, which came four hundred and thirty years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void." And there's that word promise again. You see that promise, promise, promise. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by how? By promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise, right? So back up in verse 14, what was the purpose? That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God's making this available, not just to the descendants of, of Abraham, but to one descendant of Abraham, right? Jesus. That's what he's speaking about here. So like I said, God met with this Abraham fellow and he said, you know, I'm, I'll give you, I'll give you follow me. I'll make a nation out of you. I'll bless all the nations through you and I'll give your descendant the Holy Spirit, your descendant, one, Christ. But Abraham maybe knew. I don't know what, how much Abraham understood what he was going through. Abraham, you know, we talk about Abraham, how he walked with God. But man, he'd go for decades before that angel would show up again. Think about it. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, man, wouldn't it have been amazing to be Abraham and to talk to God and, and, and be a faith? Boy, he had to live by faith because he would just disappear on him for years. And then Abraham's like, well, how is this going to happen? Let's go to Egypt. Let's, you know, take the, take the midwife, you know, take the, the maid and try to make the promises happen by himself. Yeah, it was a struggle for, for Abraham. But uh, thank God, the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can be led on a constant basis. Amen. Man, what we have is better. What we have is better. But anyway, um, I digress. So basically, 430 years later, then God meets with this guy, Abraham. He says, I want to make a nation out of you. But 430 years later, the great deliverer, Moses, comes. Why? Because Abraham's descendants are slaves in Egypt, just exactly what God told Abraham would happen. God said to Abraham, they're going to be slaves, but I'll bring them back into this land. And so God is keeping his promise to Abraham. He sends Moses. And Moses comes, he leads the people out. He goes up on the Mount Sinai, he gets the law and he comes back and he gives them the law. He's the great lawgiver. And Moses, man, if you're a Jewish person, you know Moses is your guy, man. Moses is the man and uh, he's the lawgiver. But Paul is making a case here. Hey, the law wasn't first. The law came later. What was first? The promise, right? And so just because the law came 430 years later does not annul the promise. There's nothing in that law that is going to upend the promise. It's all about the promise with God. And so you might ask the question if you're tracking with me, so what was the law for? And I'm glad you asked because that's exactly what Paul 
said in verse 19, why then the law? What was the law for? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, singular offspring, right? One to Christ. That's who we're talking about. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, the promised Holy Spirit. Amen. Till he should come. And it was put in place by angels. This is, okay, put in place by angels in an intermediary. This is Paul's way of saying this was a good thing. This was from God. This was from heaven. It was, you know, witness to the mountain, the thunder, the angels, all this stuff going on. It's not like God didn't, the law is good. It's just not the promise, right? It came along after. Why? Because of transgressions. Um, One illustration I read, and I like this, you won't find it anywhere in the Bible, but I like this this, um, uh, illustration about the purpose of the law. If you think about, um, um, you know, a disease spreading among the people, right? Like, uh, oh, I got this person who knows disease. Maybe I should, maybe I should stop talking right now before I get in trouble. No, but what's the, what's the purpose of a quarantine? A quarantine is to keep your, that disease from spreading, right? So, you know, imagine this sin comes in. It's a disease. It's infecting everybody. And the people, the Jewish people who are supposed to have the answer for the disease, they find out that they have the disease too. So what do they do? Sin is, uh, the law is like a quarantine, man. He's just trying to mitigate the damages of sin until the cure comes. That's what the law is trying to do. It's just trying to keep a nation from losing it completely. It's just trying to keep people together so that the promise can come, which is what? The cure. The law was never intended be, to be the cure. The law was just intended to limit the damages. But the old worth was already under judgment. Sin was having its way. And God just said, here, keep these rules, keep this law. This will slow down the spread of the sin in your midst so I can work through this nation and bring the cure. But when the cure comes, do you need the quarantine anymore? When the cure comes, do you need the law anymore? Okay, see if you're listening. It wasn't rhetorical. I was really curious. Verse 20. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the inter- an intermediary uh, implies more than one, but God is one. Okay. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Good question. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then the righteousness would be indeed by the law. Right? So the law was never intended to make people right. It was never intended to be the cure. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to who? Those who believe. I like this. This is an interesting thought in verse 23. Now, before faith came, do you see that faith came with Jesus? Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. <laughs> N.T. N.T. Wright said babysitter. The law was our babysitter. I like that. <laughs> he said it's an imperfect example, but really, it, 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 the, you know, the baby needs to be told what to do, how to do, right, until they come to maturity. So the law was our babysitter, our guardian, until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So because faith has come in Jesus Christ, we can now be mature sons. In faith, in Jesus Christ, not under the law. When Christ appeared, it's now possible to be mature children of God. Before Christ, it was impossible. 
All we were, the best we had was the law, do and don't. But Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, he believes in the power of his spirit working in a human heart. He believe, like I say, he believes in it more than we do. 